Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Max Barber. Max Barber is a playwright and journalist who recently moved from Omaha, Nebraska, to Minneapolis. Max was born to Irish-American parents and adopted by a Jewish family when he was just a few weeks old. He was raised in a Reformed Jewish household, but attended an Orthodox high school and in college majored in Jewish studies, including creating a short-lived program in Yiddish for his fellow students. He has worked as an arts and cultural critic for more than two decades, including stints at City Pages and Min Post in Minneapolis. He's the recipient of a Frank Premack Award for Public Affairs Journalism, and his writing has appeared in The Guardian and Tablet Magazine, among others. Max's blog, Dress British, Think Yiddish, chronicles his exploration of studying Yiddish as a hobby, including his efforts to self-educate in Omaha, as well as articles on Yiddish-influenced film, book, food, and culture. Welcome, Max. Thank you very much. Thanks. I'm so glad to have a chance to visit with you today. Um, I read your recent article in Ingeweb and was intrigued by your story, and uh, we shared a link to the article on our social media, and you responded with a wonderful Twitter, which led to an <laughs> invitation we couldn't uh, not accept um, to invite you on. Delighted that uh, we were able to get you to join us today. Yeah, I'm thrilled. Thank you very much. So you write, um, and I will quote, I heard some Yiddish growing up in my hometown of Minneapolis. This was thanks to fluent grandparents and less fluent parents, and also thanks to several years in a Jewish high school. I went on to pursue a degree in Jewish studies, and oddly, that's where Yiddish ended for me. So my question to you, can you pick up the story from there, and uh, what drew you to study Yiddish? Yeah, it was odd for me going into college. Um, obviously, there was a strong focus on Hebrew, um, and I think that's understandable. It was a Jewish studies department, and mostly what we were studying was uh, biblical texts, um, some Talmud, um, and not that much contemporary Jewish history. Um, but I, it was a small program, and so I mostly had to invent it for myself. Um, and my real interest was... Uh, was in the Jews of Eastern Europe, which is where my, my grandparents had come from. Um, and I found myself in the odd circumstance of studying Jews who spoke a language that I was not studying in school, um, it, which was tremendously frustrating for me. Mm -hmm. um, and it simply was, was not offered um, through the school. Um, briefly through my Hello House, I tried to set up a, a program to study Yiddish. Um, we brought in a native Yiddish speaker from the Jewish Community Center. That lasted a couple of months, um, and a lot of that stuck with me. Um, it, it, was, it was an enjoyable class, but uh, you can't learn a language in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Um, and so it sort of, sort of fell out of use for me for quite a long time. And I always felt badly about that, because I, I really think it's a, an extraordinary language, an extraordinarily interesting language. Um, and so I, I think it was just about a year ago, I, I found myself reading a couple of books. Um, one of them is by a guy named Gabriel Weiner called Fluent Forever, and the other is a fellow named Benny Lewis who wrote a book called Fluent in Three Months. Um, and these books sort of propose that uh, a shortcut to, to learning language, um, that if you learn the thousand most common, you, commonly used words in a foreign language, um, you'll have enough to sort of fake your way through the language. Um, and they suggest you can learn that many words in three months. Um, and I thought, well, this is a good chance to, 
to sort of get back to to Yiddish. It'd be fun to try and track down the thousand most common commonly used words in Yiddish and see if I can teach them to myself. Um, so that that was the start of the project. Uh, I decided to to just try and see if I could learn a thousand words. Um, and it turns out you can learn a thousand words um, in three months. Uh, you, they won't be particularly useful, but uh, but it's certainly <laughs> possible to uh, to pick up that many words in that shorter time period. So in the book, I I understand that he suggests that if you know those thousand words, you'll understand seventy percent of the language. And how'd that work? Well, I tested myself after three months by reading um, some articles and particularly headlines in the in the Forward magazine or the Forward newspaper, um, and I did understand about seventy percent of the headlines. Um, unfortunately, the stuff I didn't understand was everything that gave context to, <laughs> of to the stories. Um, you know, you wind up learning a lot of sort of the the words that do the the heavy lifting. But the nuance comes from very specific words that don't show up as often, um, and so I would I, I would sort of get the gist of of what a story might be about, um, but none of the details. Um, and to be fair to uh, Weiner and Lewis's books, they don't promise anything more than that. They they don't claim that you can be competent in a language in that time period, just that you'll be able to uh, to start to be able to pick it up. And and their program is really intended to jumpstart. Um, people who are interested in speaking a language. So it's intended to teach you enough to sort of get into the field and communicate with actual speakers. Um, and because you'll have this, this sort of working vocabulary, um, you can sort of brute force your way through conversations and through, through doing that, pick up a lot more language. Um, that turns out to be, or at least in Omaha, that turned out to be an impossible next step with Yiddish. Um, there just weren't enough Yiddish speakers or enough opportunity for me to, to engage in that way. Um, but I had already committed to three months' worth, so I just thought I'd continue doing the project uh, in whatever way seemed interesting to me. And, and beyond the three months, how far did you get in terms of trying to learn this on your own, which I imagine is really challenging? Um, well, I continued doing the program the way they suggested it, which is a there's sort of a smartphone um, flashcard program, um, which makes use of something called spaced repetition, where if, you, if you're bad at a word, it comes up more often, and if you're good at a word, it falls to the back of the deck. So you wind up learning fairly quickly, um, and the words you have trouble with, you wind up having to do more and more often. And so, uh, so it forces you to learn at a very... Uh, Sort of intelligent uh, way, um, I kept doing that, and I've I've gone through about four thousand individual flashcards a, a year into the program, um, and I expanded beyond simply learning words to learning phrases and uh, particularly idioms mm -hmm. and proverbs, which I really enjoy. That's something that you can, you know, I, since I can't use uh, Yiddish as a vernacular language, uh, since I don't have anybody to speak it with, I. I had to figure out ways to uh, to make use of Yiddish that were enjoyable to me, and I, I like the proverbs, I like Yiddish jokes, um, and that sort of thing. Um, and so I started plugging those into the flashcards, and as a result of that, I I feel like I started picking up a little bit of Yiddish grammar. Although now I'm into my second year in this program, and I really feel like I need to sit 
sit down with a grammar book and figure out how a, a proper Yiddish sentence is constructed. Um, but I do find that I can look around the world and sort of see things and know what they're called in Yiddish, um, which I couldn't do a year ago, and it's, it's kind of amazing for me. Well, it's it's quite an undertaking. And you also then went on to launch your blog, Dress British, Think Yiddish. Um, yeah. question that I have to ask first is what's behind the name? And then how did the blog sort of figure into all of this? Well, there used to be buttons that people would wear on their on their coats, sort of like little jokey buttons that said uh, "Just British, uh, Think Yiddish." Um, those were fairly popular in the '60s, and you can still get them on eBay. Um, and I wound up buying one and uh, got interested in the history of that phrase. Uh, and I think it was a fellow named Harry Gold who came up with it. He was a humorist. Um, he had been at IBM where. Uh, where they also had a Think logo, and um, he felt like the key to success in life was to dress British so you would look like everybody, but think Yiddish in the sense of of having an unusual understanding of the world or an unusual way of approaching it. Um, and that phrase spread like wildfire in the 60s. You'll still hear, you'll still hear people express it as a, a, a sort of formula for success. Um, and I liked that since I'm I myself am biologically uh, Irish, and and there's a version of it that uh, that goes uh, dress British, look Irish, uh, think Yiddish, and that described me so nicely. <laughs> it I, was meant I, for you. <laughs> I had I had to steal it. Um, um, so yeah, that's the source of the title of the blog. Um, I decided to do the blog because I I, I looked around online to because I know there's people out there who study Yiddish in a more formal way, and I, I wanted to sort of understand their experience of it, and there just wasn't much of that online. Um, people weren't documenting their own experiences. Um, and so, I've, you know, I started doing web stuff in the late 90s and early 2000s, where if you did any kind of a project, you you had to do a blog about it. Um, and I still have that habit. So I, I started up the blog, and it quickly expanded to me being interested in Yiddish film and Yiddish music and and all these sorts of non vernacular expressions of Yiddish, um, you know, ways you can enjoy the language without having to have a conversation. And so it seems like you were introduced to the the richness of the culture. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I thankfully for me, a couple of months into it, I discovered a book called Adventures in Yidd- Yiddish Land by mm-hmm. Jeffrey Chandler. Um, and he proposes, and you're probably familiar with this, he proposes the idea that um, Yiddish is a very robust life as something called a post-vernacular language, that it's uh, it's something that people use in their day-to-day life in a way that's not having a conversation. Um, and I, that's how I'd been using it. And now I had a much larger body of Yiddish to draw from, um, and I was very interested in figuring out how, how to use that when I can't have conversations in it. Um, and the book was really helpful in that, um, in, in suggesting that there's all these all these cultural ways that people make use of Yiddish. Um, and so the blog expanded to me exploring exploring that and exploring how I, uh, how I myself can interact with that. I wonder, when you set out to learn Yiddish, did you imagine that it would reveal this and connect you to a larger community? No, I had no idea. Um, I really didn't know where I was headed um, with it when I started learning it. 
um, when you start learning anything, you, you have a sort of a confused idea of how quickly and how much and how effectively you can learn something. And so I guess in my fantasies, I'd be sitting in a delicatessen reading the foreword um, in Yiddish in four months and just be able to call old people and have converse, fluent conversations with them in Yiddish. Um, that turned out to be impossible. Um, you really can't, um, can't become competent um, in conversational Yiddish sitting in Omaha reading dictionaries and memorizing words from it. But I did discover as a result of, uh, of this expanded idea of what you can do with Yiddish that, that this language can be used for all sorts of other, other purposes, and that was tremendously exciting for me. Um, and it, you know, as you mentioned, it also opened up all sorts of opportunities to meet other people through the web um, who are engaged in Yiddish in a huge variety of ways. And one of the things I do on the blog is interview people who I think are doing interesting work in Yiddish, people writing plays or uh, doing music. And that's that's been incredibly rewarding. It, it, even though in Omaha I had no community of Yiddish speakers, um, internationally there's a huge co- community of Yiddish speakers, and I've been able to start to get plugged into that community. Which is uh, really fun, I would imagine. And you wrote, um, I did some sleuthing, and I read a really interesting piece that you wrote about the history of Yiddish in Omaha. Mm-hmm. I, I had no idea there was that large uh, Yiddish-speaking community in theater and stuff. I wondered if you could, yeah, just expand a little bit about what what you found. Yeah, it was strange um, to be in Omaha because it was such a desert of Yiddish um, uh, that I really wanted to find out if it had always been like that because I knew that uh, that the town had been settled largely by Central and Eastern Europeans in general, um, and that includes Central and Eastern European Jews. Uh, the north side of uh, Omaha had been a, largely a Russian Jewish community, um, and I assumed that they had come and brought Yiddish with them, but there just didn't seem to be much of a record of it. Um, and so I started going. At that point, I was working. My day job was working as a, a researcher at, at the Historical Society for Omaha, the Douglas County Historical Society, and so I had access to them huge number of old newspapers and records, and I just started going through them um, and discovered that there really had been, at one point, a robust Yiddish-speaking community in Omaha, that there were synagogues where the services were held in Yiddish. And I don't think there was ever a uh, Yiddish theater that was based in Omaha, but they brought an awful lot of Yiddish theater to Omaha. Um, and something I'm very interested in, there's, there seems to have been this sort of... Uh, circuit of Yiddish performers, um, some of them very famous, who traveled around the country frequently to small towns in the Midwest um, and performed there for the Jewish communities there. I, I hadn't seen any documentation of that before, and it's something I'm, I'm interested in exploring more. Um, so yeah, one of the things that winds up happening is you you wind up digging to see what's happened prior to you and, and discover this entire world that... Uh, you know, in Omaha, certainly nobody was researching the history of Yiddish there. Um, it feels feels a little bit like uh, it was getting lost for no reason because it's a good and interesting history. Yeah, it seemed like a very rich history when I read what you wrote, um, and that there was an audience that, you know, commanded enough um, that they could get all of these theater troops to visit there. It's not like it's um, the easiest destination. If I may, certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and may I ask, um, 
Were your, are your grandparents still alive? Do they know you pursued this? They're not. Um, uh, when I was born, I only had two of my four grandparents still alive, uh-huh. um, and they all passed away by the time I was a teenager. Um, um, I did, I, because I went to a Jewish high school, I was able to have some conversations with my grandfather about Judaism. Um, but I, I don't think I ever even, well, I shouldn't say that. I, I certainly heard him speak Yiddish when I was a boy because um, he had a summer place up in the Catskills. Um, and for at least a couple of summers, I went up there and spent them with him. And so we would we would do this sort of tour of what old Jewish men did in the Catskills in the summer, which is, I believe mostly played pinochle at the uh, at the various venues. Um, but we would hear comedians, um, and often their punchlines were in Yiddish, um, were Yiddish idioms. Um, so I had no idea what was being said. But uh, but it really was a, a view of a an older version of the Jewish life that fascinated me. Um, and it's it's something that that I've explored. Um, through this project, been able to find out a lot more about that world. And what's next? Well, that's a good question. Um, I'm just ending my first year of doing this and had to look forward to my second year. And the truth is, part of what I want to do is legitimately increase my competency. As much as it may be impossible for me to become truly uh, able to communicate, to converse in Yiddish, practicing on my own, I think that I can get a good way of the way there on my own. And so I, I, I want to continue this self-education. Um, and I want to continue to document it because uh, it really is enjoyable. I think it's something that other people could, could duplicate. Um, but I, I also want to continue to expand this. Um, I'm very interested in Yiddish music, and so I'd like to start to participate in that. Um, I'm a playwright, um, and in the last year I, I wrote a play that's heavily influenced by Yiddish. Um, it, it's set in the world of Yiddish performance in the mid-20th century. Um, I want to revise that to the point where I'm ready to start sending it out and, and see if there's interest in that and continue to write that sort of thing. I write short stories, and, and those are becoming increasingly Yiddish-flavored. Uh, I, I think that one of the risks of this project that I, I wasn't aware of when I began it was that uh, you, you really do start to think Yiddish, uh, that it, it starts to uh, to influence a lot of what you do. Um, and, of, of course, it does. It's an incredibly rich, expressive language. Um, and once you've got access to that language, even if it's only a little bit, um, it starts seeping into everything you do. I, I think that's true, and seeing... Um our summer Yiddish um, program students, and I, mm-hmm. you know, I'll ask them why Yiddish, and I'll talk a little bit about it. And then you see them as alum going on to do all of these incredible things in theater and translation and the arts and academic, you know, writing, etc. That seemed not just unimaginable, but not something that one would expect would have a continuum, and that's really exciting. Um, so I yeah, yeah I feel like be if interesting. You, if you, I feel like if you've got Yiddish, you wind up feeling like you have to use it. <laughs> you've got to do something with it. Um, you know, I, I try to always be cognizant of how little I know, um, and that there's there's a great deal more to learn. But uh, I've always also felt whatever you've got, you should try and make some use of. Um, 
And so, uh, yeah, I guess the next few years are going to be me figuring out how to make use of it. But it sounds like you're well on your way. Um, I thank you for visiting us, and I do hope you'll make your way to the Yiddish Book Center sometime. You know, we have well, Yiddish. Well, that's, that's one of my plans for the next couple of years, so I, I hope to make it out there as well. Okay. We have Yiddish school. You can come, Yidstock, or just come and we'll show you around, and there'll be plenty of people to speak Yiddish with you. I, I very much that. appreciate that. Um, thank you, um, and look forward to staying in touch. And why don't you just share, if you would, um, the blog so that our listeners can hop on over onto the World Wide Web and see what you're Absolutely, up to. Absolutely. Uh, as you said, it's called Dress British, Think Yiddish, and it's just BritYiddish, one word, dot com, BritYiddish, dot com. Fantastic. And we look forward to seeing um, all of your endeavors come to fruition. Thank you so much. All right, take care. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To learn more about this podcast and to subscribe, visit our website, yiddishbookcenter.org. This episode is produced by me, Alexa Sewing. And until next time, be well and be healthy.